and welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I am not, as you may have guessed, Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Uh, my name is Matthew Gariglia. I am the longtime producer of the Why We Argue podcast and a PhD candidate in history at the University of Connecticut. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project of the University of Connecticut, which explores how we balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features interviews with scholars on the current state of public discourse and contemporary democracy. Our guest today is Alex Vitali, a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He has also published in a number of popular venues, and his new book, The End of Policing, came out last year with Verso Press. Hello, Alex. Welcome to the program. Hi, you're welcome. Uh, so I guess I wanted to start uh, by talking a little bit about police reform and the kind of political discourse around police reform, because it seems like in the lead up to the 2016 primaries and election, there seemed to be a kind of consensus forming that something needed to change. And whether or not that was because of all the activism and the movement for black lives leading up to that point um, might certainly be the case. But I was wondering if you if you felt kind of... Um, optimistic if you felt like there was progress being made in that time period? And then what's happened in between then and now? So I think that there has been some shift in discourse and there has been some movements for reform that I'll put in air quotes. But I think in terms of the basic functioning of policing in the United States, I don't think we have a lot of changes to point to. So uh, I haven't been very optimistic in the short run about where we're at. Yeah, and and so do you do you get the sense now that uh, both Democrats and Republicans are are kind of scared to touch the police issue at the moment? Well, I think there there's actually a pretty bifurcated discourse around this, so that what you get, neither of which I think is very productive. So obviously, on the conservative side, there's been almost a kind of doubling down on uh, a pro-police rhetoric. Uh, obviously, the, the stuff coming out of the Trump administration is the most egregious. But even in, uh, in saner circles, what you see is a, an embracing of, uh, you know, police bill of rights kinds of stuff enhancements to police power, reductions in police accountability. And then on the other side, you have a kind of liberal reform agenda, which was uh, sort of championed by the Obama Justice uh, Department and has been embraced really by a lot of big city mayors who are responding to the the high levels of, of public pressure and protest around this. My concern is that that liberal reform agenda contains very little of of substance, as far as I can tell. Uh, Calls to diversify police, to uh, make some tweaks to police uh, training, adding implicit bias training, uh, doing some community policing initiatives, even adding body cameras. I don't think there's much reason to believe that any of that's going to have any substantial effect on policing. And I think that part of the reason for that is that even uh, Democratic slash liberal uh, local 
political leaders have been either uninterested or unwilling to directly take on the kind of uh, fundamental expressions of police power. And by that, I mean actually going in and challenging our use of police on a broad range of things. So no one is looking at police budgets, police overtime, police training dollars and saying, you know what, maybe we could spend that money more effectively on uh, youth jobs programs, drug treatment on demand, adequate mental health treatment, et cetera, so that we don't end up driving those folks into the criminal justice system in the first place. So uh, that's the kind of, I think, uh, discourse that's needed politically, but is largely absent. Yeah, and your new book makes, I think, a very compelling case for uh, a reduction or an abolition of policing, the, the book, The End of Policing. Uh, have you gotten a lot of pushback on on the on the the main argument and even just the title of that book from from people who are arguing the opposite? Uh, surprisingly little. I keep waiting for the other shoe to fall on that. I have gotten some little isolated, you know, bits of of whatever internet trolling, mostly by people who actually as far as I can tell haven't actually read the book. They seem to be reacting solely to the title. In fact, uh, there were some angry tirades against the book on Amazon uh, that were clearly had nothing to do with what was in the book. And I spoke to Amazon and they agreed and took them down because it was just a kind of knee jerk attack against anything that seemed to be a criticism of policing. And they, they had not engaged the actual ideas in the book at all. That's really interesting that Amazon would be willing to do that. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like it makes sense because so much of the argument for a proliferation of, of policing um, has to do with, with fear. Uh, and I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about the kind of um, the Blue Lives Matter and the, the thin blue line and the kind of rhetoric emerging from that about the necessity of policing and, and the type of policing they're hoping for. So, you know, there's the extreme uh, examples of that, this kind of narcissistic uh, uh, worldview that says that the only thing that keeps civilization functioning is aggressive and invasive policing and that we need to give police more power, more authority, more weaponry, more tools to keep the barbarians at bay. And I think behind that is, frankly, a lot of racism. And even when it's not racism, it is a very simplistic mindset that divides the world up between good people and bad people. But one of the things we know is that good people do bad things and that you know everybody has done something they're not proud of and that uh, the real threats to uh, you know, justice and well-being come from uh, very well-educated, respected quarters in many cases, uh, the Enrons and the Bernie Madoffs and uh, the poisoning of the environment and these things. And so this kind of simplistic, narcissistic worldview that says, well, it's just armed, aggressive police that keeps civilization going, I think is, is really problematic. Because if, uh, if I go to the park and the swings are broken, and I call the parks department and I complain about maintenance in the park. Am I anti-parks? If, if, the, if the sanitation guys 
uh, spill the garbage all over the sidewalk when they pick up the garbage thing and they don't get it into the truck and I call and complain, am I anti-sanitation? No, I just want those institutions to work properly. Or, frankly, if I say maybe police are not the best suited tool of local government to deal with the problem of drugs, does it really make sense to just describe that as an issue of being anti-cop? It's about holding government accountable for these basic things. So, so that's like at the most extreme, but there's even a, uh, in a way a more pernicious rhetoric because it's, it's more subtle, but it still relies on fear. And that's, you know, this, this uh, responding to these school shootings, we're, we're in this current crisis mode around this, and what you see is a lot of discourse about uh, putting more police in schools, giving teachers guns. Some of this, you know, by very well-meaning folks who are afraid. But I just, uh, you know, tweeted something out today that this, you know, put this good guys with guns narrative is really about manipulating people's fears to sell more guns because there's no evidence that it's going to make our kids any safer. And we now know that in the school in Florida, there was an armed police officer. And uh, at Columbine, where this all gets started, uh, at least rhetorically, there were armed police on campus that day, and it made no difference. So we've been caught up in these ideological discourses that have become deeply removed from any actual concerns about evidence. Yeah, and uh, I'm really glad you talked about this because one of the things uh, you've written about a lot is the outsourcing of different tasks and jobs that government used to fulfill to the police. Um, and one of them being uh, in schools specifically, the officers put their by design to protect children from outside intruders or from a student with a gun, essentially take on the role of disciplinarian. Uh, and that becomes one of their primary tasks in schools across the country. Yeah. And there's just no evidence that this is good for students, good for education, et cetera. It's driven by a lot of misperceptions about what goes on in schools. Uh, you know, the rise of Policing occurs in the 1990s and is driven by the super predator myth, this totally spurious, politically driven argument that there was going to be this wave of killer kids who were all sociopaths and that we needed to fortify and start schools, criminalize young people, etc. Of course, every year after that myth was put out there, juvenile crime rates have fallen in every category totally made up to serve a political agenda, and it ended up leading to a massive expansion of police in schools. So, and then that was furthered by the mania of high-stakes testing and charter schools that deployed a whole raft of zero-tolerance disciplinary measures and incentivized driving out low-performing kids from school to enhance test scores. So instead of actually dealing with our educational issues by rethinking how things work in the classroom, creating restorative disciplinary programs, investing in counselors, 
dealing with the intensive racialized disparities in school funding, we threw a lot of cops at the problem. And that's what we've done with a lot of social problems. And this, I think, drives a lot of the problems that we have with yeah, and apart from kind of protecting the the blue lives uh, and you know the kind of insular social life of police um, and their kind of other police kinship networks, uh, do you think that that's part of the reason why people have been so reluctant to uh, really um, engage with the idea of the abolition of police? Is because at this point they fill so many roles in our society that. Uh, to replace them would mean creating a lot of new institutions? Well, certainly it's caught up in a larger kind of culture war, political war that has really become divorced from the central issue. So that today, if, if someone has a suggestion about a reform that might actually save police lives, if it is perceived in any way to interfere with police power and authority, it will be dismissed as anti-cop without any consideration of the actual merits of the argument. And so this makes it very hard to have a rational conversation about policing or climate. And the administration in Washington is certainly exacerbating that, but it is a, it's a flawed problem. And I think that uh, police unions that represent rank and file police have by and large also played a really negative role in trying to come to terms with these issues. Ironically, uh, some of the receptive audiences to at least having a rational conversation are some police leaders around the country who see more clearly that there is a problem undermining police legitimacy, but of course, they're loathe to embrace anything that uh, reduces their the scope and, of their power to influence. Uh, but there are exceptions. Uh, David Brown, who was chief in Dallas when the officers were killed there, uh, he made very public statements about the fact that part of the problem with policing Dallas was that the city government was asking them to do too many different things. Policing schools, policing the mentally ill, chasing stray dogs. And he's like, we've got to rethink this crazy expansion of policing into every social problem in our, in our society. Yeah, and um, because the, the rhetoric uh, surrounding policing has been so heightened uh, recently under the Trump administration, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how you think uh, the current presidency has been affecting these conversations. Well, it's certainly affecting the conversations in the sense that uh, Sessions and Trump have created a kind of legitimacy around some of the most extreme forms of this thin blue line discourse. Fortunately, you know, the good news is, is that the federal role in shaping law enforcement practices is actually quite limited. Policing in the United States is really a local phenomenon. And while it's true they've dismantled any kind of federal oversight, Department of Justice interventions, there actually was very little evidence to support the, uh, you know, the usefulness of those interventions under the Obama administration because of the weakness of the reforms that they propose. So I think what we have to do is we have to understand that the problems of policing, while 
patterned nationally are ultimately local in nature. Local elected officials have the power to change these institutions and to replace some of what they do with, with better alternatives. And they're the ones who need to be held accountable. Yeah, and uh, I know you've done a lot of work with um, activists and abolitionists in New York and around the country. Uh, I'm wondering if you if you've seen any specific approaches that they're employing that you think are are really working to maybe change the conversation and change sure. minds. Sure. Well, one thing that I've been really enthusiastic about is is the Ithaca Plan, named for Ithaca, New York, in upstate New York, where Cornell University is based. The uh, the mayor there uh, saw just how futile and counterproductive anti-narcotics policing was for his community. It wasn't doing anything to reduce the availability of drugs. It wasn't saving lives from overdoses. So he brought together a wide range of experts, from the medical community, farm reduction, the criminal justice system, and said to them, look, I want you to work with each other and go out into the community, hold town hall meetings, put together focus groups, meet with people, and come up with a comprehensive approach at the local level that we could implement to deal with our narcotics problems and start from the premise that everything's on the table. And what they came up with is a pretty good plan that calls for drug treatment on demand, 24-hour crisis intervention, uh, needle exchange, safe injection facilities, diversion programs, and almost nothing about police and prosecutions. So that when we, we, when we give communities a chance to think about how to produce public safety and solve community problems holistically, they come up often with very good solutions. The problem is, is that over the last 40 years, these communities have been told the only tool they can have to solve their community problems is the police. Community policing is, I think, the most obvious example of this. It turns every community problem into something that only the police are able to solve with the very limited tools that the police can bring to those problems. Uh, you know, there are other examples of folks uh, like in Minneapolis who are doing community-based anti-violence work, uh, folks who are trying to put restorative justice programs into schools instead of school police, uh, folks who are trying to harness community mental health resources so that people don't call 911 and have armed police show up and remember their families having a mental health crisis. So these are the kinds of efforts that I think that we need to support as police reform, because really we're not going to reform the police with a little tinkering around training and stuff. It's got to be about finding alternative ways of dealing with our problems. And are these more holistic approaches? Are they are they picking up steam? Are there other communities that are adopting them? I mean, I doubt under Jeff Sessions there's a, a federal look at these kind of holistic measures. But I'm wondering if it's picking yes, up steam I'd say elsewhere. It, it is now. Not at, obviously you're right. Not at the national level, but uh, the Center for Popular Democracy uh, issued a report recently where they they looked at 12 major cities where they have connections to grassroots 
faith-based organizations that were challenging their city's reliance financially and operationally on police to deal with every problem on under the sun and and began looking at just how much money was involved and articulating what the alternatives might look like. So from Houston to LA to Oakland to St. Louis, Baltimore, people are out there uh, organizing, uh, doing research, trying to advocate for real humane responses to our community problems that, that undermine our reliance on handcuffs and handguns and ticket books as the only tools to, to deal with things like youth violence and drugs and sex work, et cetera. That's interesting. I mean, we know from, from federal investigations from in communities like Ferguson that so much of the municipal budget was coming from the police department and ticketing and things like that. Um, is that is, is municipal budget going to become a, a real issue as we look to kind of Changed so policing the, as the we know it. Police's fundraisers is not quite as big a problem as the Ferguson thing uh, might lead us to believe. It, that is an issue primarily in very small, underfunded municipalities, many of which shouldn't even have their own police force, in my opinion. It's not really a factor in the big cities where uh, policing should be understood as a, as a significant expense, not a source of revenue generation. Uh, and I was in Ferguson recently on, uh, on, under the invitation of the Advancement Project and uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, precisely because activists there have grown frustrated with the kinds of recommendations that the Department of Justice called for, like community policing and body cameras, et cetera, they see that these things are not working. They're not leading to real changes. And they are looking to kind of pick some of these campaigns for producing safety at the community level, possibly around the issue of, of drugs, et cetera. So uh, this, is, uh, this is, I think, really a growing movement nationally. And more and more organizations are reaching out to me on that basis because they, they want to try to head in that direction. That's very interesting, yeah. And I was wondering if we could also uh, turn briefly toward the end of our conversation here to your fantastic book, The End of Policing. Um, I was wondering about who you uh, envision the audience being for this. Is, is this something that you hope would, would change minds, or is it uh, a kind of genealogy of our current policing crisis for People who are already well, I think engaged one of the big the motivations for me in writing this is that, you know, I've been working on policing issues for over 25 years. And, and during that time, I've seen a number of cycles of protest and outrage that have not generated any real changes. And part of the problem, in my view, is that the, the outbursts have been episodic and disconnected and that the kinds of demands very well-meaning folks, community leaders, et cetera, have made have not really been informed by decades of research that show just how limited those reforms are. And so I was hoping to try to raise the discourse among folks who are already working on police accountability or see the need for police accountability uh, so that they can broaden their analysis and hopefully move 
away from some of the simplistic reforms like implicit bias training and hiring more black police officers that just aren't going to make any difference. Uh, and, you know, I, the audience was not really police so much, though I've been surprised how many of them uh, here and in the UK are actually engaging it. And in fact, next month I'll be been invited to speak at two police training programs in the UK and the, the British Police Foundation has asked me to come address a whole room full of police executives. So uh, I think in that case, police in the UK see clearly the problems that we're having with policing in the US and they fear that those problems are coming their way uh, due to political changes in the UK. And so, uh, yeah, you can't always anticipate uh, where where you're going to find an audience. Thank you. Uh, well, Alex, thank you very much for being on the program. Uh, it was great having you on to talk about pleasure. your work and your book. All right. Thank you very much. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at, at Public Humility. That's one word, Public Humility. Thank you so much, and bye for now. <laughs>